to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks so much for listening to us today. We have entered the new century. It is episode 201. Ah. Century's the wrong word. Hundred? The new hundro? The new hundy. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I only make these jokes to make you laugh. <laughs> TBH. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today. Been working hard mm-hmm. uh, the last few days and feeling feeling nice, feeling better. The sun is out. It hasn't snowed here in a while. These are all things that contribute to a better mood. I am doing fine as long as I don't look at the COVID stats in Alberta. Yeah. Because our government has shit the bed. Yeah, they're bad. And they are continuing to be bad because they are continuing to just sort of wanting to stay on a fence where they're doing enough that you can't say they aren't doing anything, Mm -hmm. but not doing so much that'll make anyone mad at them. Anyone with money. (laughs) It's bad here, yeah. but uh, that's okay, because I'm not looking outside. That's right, and we're, we're staying inside here, nice and safe and isolated mm-hmm. from our friends and our family who we haven't <laughs> seen for months. Nice and safe <laughs> from the people we love. That's right. Um, <laughs> speaking of looking inwards mm-hmm. and... Isolation? And isolation. What are we <laughs> watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, directed by our good friend Jack Arnold. Awesome. I I really do hope that this is incredible. (laughs) Most people think so. This is one of my favorite 1950s, like, sci-fi horror movies. Okay. Um, It does, I think, the horror of this movie is more cerebral. Okay, I was going to ask about that because everything I read in doing research for this put this very solidly in sci-fi and not in a kind of blend genre mm-hmm. that we've seen before. I would definitely argue this is horror. Um, this movie is almost nihilistic. It stops just short. Mm-hmm. And the horror is you have to put yourself in the main character's shoes, which I argue you should do in like any movie to like really experience like the emotional intent. But, um, if you, if you think about what he's going through, I consider this horror. I consider this a a very disturbing movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and maybe for our audience members who might not be familiar with nihilism, can you explain what that is in a single sentence? Nihilists believe in, in nothing perfect great um (laughs) the horror of there being nothing yeah there's no meaning to life Mm -hmm. uh there's no purpose to what you're doing and you are nothing so yeah i would say that this does have like very firm feet in science fiction as a genre but it's definitely a kind of different flavor of sci-fi than either the 
alien invasion Mm -hmm. movies that are sort of an allegory for the cold war that the fifties has seen a lot of, or the giant monster movies that are vaguely allegories for like nuclear scares that the fifties have seen a lot in. Even in the sci-fi that we've encountered through the forties, where Mm -hmm. it's mainly about a mad scientist. Right. Um, This isn't a, we're going to meet aliens and they're going to be scary or we're going to meet aliens and they're going to be great Mm -hmm. movie. The thing about this movie is what makes it unique from the other sci-fi films of this decade are the things that in my opinion, make it horror, um, which are a focus on psychology and a kind of breakdown of the fragility of masculinity. Mm -hmm. But we're sort of getting ahead of ourselves uh, because before there was an incredible shrinking man. There was just a shrinking man. <laughs> so, Sarah, um, I know you have a lot to tell us about the novel this movie's based on and its um, illustrious author. Yes. I don't know if he was ever into illustration. But um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm here all week. Hey. Uh, our author today is Richard Matheson who was born in New Jersey in 1926, and he passed away in 2013, Mm -hmm. just days before he was going to be awarded the Visionary Award from the Saturn Awards. Yeah. So he he would have been 87. Mm -hmm. And the Saturn Awards are a one of the big deal um, sci-fi award categories, although I think the Saturns are more focused on sci-fi and like film and television. Yes, Um, but they do recognize contributors to the literary genres, especially when they blend over into Mm -hmm. television and film, like a lot of Matheson's work has. Whereas the Hugo Awards are sort of the opposite. They are awards for sci-fi literature, but they do have categories for film and TV as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, when his Norwegian immigrant parents divorced, Richard went to live with his mother in Brooklyn. At age eight, he had already published his first short story in the Brooklyn Eagle newspaper. After graduating high school in 1943, he joined the army and served in Europe during World War II, Uh, his experiences there inspiring some of his later works. Once he returned stateside, he earned his bachelor's in journalism and then moved west to California. (laughs) Throughout the 50s, he wrote many, many short stories as well as novels, and he first attracted attention from critics through his 1950s short story titled Born of Man and Woman, which is, um, again, described as like both feet being in science fiction. But I think it could be a blend from a certain point of view, because it's about this creature, uh, this monster who's like locked up in the basement, who is born from two human parents. Yeah, I would. Instead of a Bart's twin (laughs) in the attic being served fish heads. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very similar. I would argue that on the whole, Matheson's best known works are all sci-fi stories that have horror in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he a lot of his works definitely blend science fiction, horror, and fantasy mm. genres. His first short story anthology was published in 1954, so you can kind of 
get a feel for what his output was like, as well as the success he has had. Um, already in like four years where he's, you know, sitting down and doing writing as a career, he has enough cachet to publish an anthology and publishers going, ah, yes, someone will want to purchase this. Yeah. Also in this era of sci-fi writing, like your bread and butter was short stories. Your bread and butter was pulp magazines. They paid you by the word. If you wanted to make money at it, you had to write a lot. Yes. And right. He did. In addition to short stories, he wrote some other notable novels, such as I Am Legend, mm-hmm. published in 1954, The Shrinking Man, what we are talking about today, published in 1956, Hell House in 1971, and many others. Yeah, um, a lot of his novels would be adapted to film. Certainly, I Am Legend has been adapted like what three times three times and also the first adaptation we'll be seeing is uh 1964 yes and it's also arguable that without i am legend we don't get george romero zombies which means we don't get every piece of zombie media made over the last 60 years well i think we're getting ahead of ourselves we are because matheson is a figure that we will be seeing quite frequently in horror films to come Um, Not only as an author of original works being adapted into film, but as a screenwriter adapting his own works to film. So, for example, um, which I'm sure you will be able to tell us how he got involved, he helped adapt his novel into this film, thus making it incredible. (laughs) By the 60s, he had really gotten into show business, as they say. He wrote many Twilight Zone episodes in the 60s. He helped adapt... His novel, I Am Legend, into The Last Man on Earth, starring Vincent Price in 64, as well as uh, in the 60s, he started a working relationship with Roger Corman for a series of Edgar Allan Poe adaptations, Mm -hmm. which I am very excited to get to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why do you say it like that? They're very good. Okay, I'm, I'm very excited. It does mean that I will have to be like, Edgar Allan Poe married his 13 year old cousin. Yeah, once again. For a while. (laughs) But that's all to come. Uh, Right now, in 1957, he's had repeated literary success. He was married in 1952. And currently, at this time, he is working on his next novel, a horror fantasy book titled A Stir of Echoes, which would be published in 1958. So because he's involved in the actual adaptation to film, I imagine that the movie will be fairly accurate or um, faithful to the novel, but here's what happens in the novel. I'm also summarizing a bit, because it's a novel. A lot of stuff happens. Sure. So the novel is told in what you could call like a fractured timeline. We start with Scott Carey just having the worst vacation. Uh, He ingests insecticide, and then to top it all off, he gets exposed to a radioactive cloud. So with the two substances mixing within his body, Carrie begins to shrink. So that's told as a flashback, and then we cut back to Carrie's current predicament, where he has completely shrunk down to less than 20 centimeters. Now, as we go back and forth, um, we learn that when he first noticed he was starting to shrink, Carrie tried to ignore it. But after a few weeks, it became impossible to ignore He was only shrinking about 3.6 millimeters a day, um, which for our American friends is a seventh of an inch. 
but he found it very demasculating. Like he's a grown man and he's slowly shrinking. And it's not just like when you have like an image on your computer and you, you take the top point and you Mm -hmm. just bring it down and you get like squatter. No, no, he's like proportionally. Yeah, exactly. You're taking the corner point and shrinking it down. Exactly. Yeah. So he's finding it very demasculating, especially when some teens make fun of him. <laughs> Always a humiliating experience. Those damn teens. Carrie is feeling that his smaller size and physique is causing him to lose the respect of his wife and family. Um, kind of speaking to that theme around uh, masculinity that you talked about in the beginning. So eventually he becomes only 20 centimeters tall and continues to shrink, facing off against local wildlife including a sparrow the house cat and my favorite Hmm. spiders Mm -hmm. and the question by the end becomes no longer you know will he continue to shrink into non-existence um but instead perhaps he'll shrink into smaller worlds like marvel's ant-man right basically yeah Uh, a comic book character who would not exist until the mid 1960s Mm -hmm. but i think like for today's audience it's like the easiest way to understand like yeah the the peril that this guy that carrie is facing um because he's continuing to shrink yeah absolutely i think like if it was 20 years ago we would compare to like honey i shrunk the kids but ant-man is definitely an apt description especially because i'm almost positive that stan lee created ant-man as a ripoff of this movie because most of Stanley's ideas were basically taking movies he liked and kind of mashing them together. Mm-hmm. So that's the end. There's no cure. There's no return to normal. Just death? Question mark. What I think is interesting here that you can see with Matheson is that he really captured the attention of his audience with how believable the story was. Everyone kept saying, you know, this is like a believable domestic setting once you get past the fantastic opening mm. basically and reminded me of what we would see when talking about hg wells of having a fantastic start and then everything that follows should be logical right exactly you get one weird thing for example uh, scottish editor dave pringle wrote in a review that the shrinking man was like kafka in an ideal home setting Sure. Like Kafka's Metamorphosis. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So as we've kind of already pointed out, the general consensus on themes were about losing masculinity and what it means to be a man in 1950s America, especially because repeatedly Carrie is shown to believe that masculinity is synonymous with superiority over Mm -hmm. others Mm -hmm. um, and with the loss of his physical stature that superiority is lost. Yeah. So I've told you about Matheson's life up to this point. We're going to be talking about him a lot more in the future. So I'm going to like leave that his future a mystery um, that we will unveil as we get there. The novel's like ambiguous ending where he's just going to keep shrinking forever. And does that mean that he'll cease to exist or does that mean that he'll just like, you know, will he keep shrinking down to like the quantum realm basically Mm -hmm marks it as really different from what you'd expect, right? Because you expect there to be a solve. Yeah. And by sort of using this like flashback structure, um, Matheson said that he tried telling it in order and found it really 
boring and hard to keep writing. So he used the flashback structure. So when he got like bored with like domestic dispute scenes between like uh, the lead character, Scott Carey and his wife, you know, um, with the, the, this like demasculation and all of this, he could just like cut back to like Carey, like fending off a spider with a pencil Mm -hmm. in like a dramatic action scene before having to go back to the earlier stuff again. Yeah. Um, the spider that he faces off in the novel is a black widow spider, which the worst of all spiders, yeah. one of the worst. Why are black widow spiders the worst, Sarah? Cause they're super tiny and one bite will fucking kill you, Ben. I don't know if that's true, but they're deadly. Okay. I'm like, when I say, I don't know if that's true. That's not so much me doubting you as me saying like, I'm not a spider expert. So I'll just take your fear as justified mm-hmm. and we can move on. So yeah. Um, one thing that I think many people might not be aware of is that especially by this point in the 1950s and this practice continues to today, once an author has kind of like put in the draft, the manuscript of their book to like their publishing company or whatever, it's super typical for their agent to just start sending the manuscript around to Hollywood, just Mm -hmm. start sending it to studios before the book is even published Yeah, to try and get a movie deal because that's often very good for an author to get. So Universal International, our old friends, bought the rights for Matheson's novel uh, before it had even been published. And Matheson agreed to sell to Universal on the condition that he got to adapt the novel himself. Nice. We've seen that um, that's usually pretty good for an author to do (laughs) (laughs) if he wants to maintain his creative vision. Sure. Uh, He had never written a screenplay before, but he felt like he adapted to the unique style like pretty quickly and pretty well. Um, He thought he'd done a pretty good job. Unfortunately... The novel's flashback structure, which was retained in Matheson's script, was deemed too complex by the film's producer, Albert Zugsmith. Uh, Zugsmith felt that basically that audiences wouldn't be able to like follow the flashback thing while also having to grasp the central concept of him slowly shrinking. It would get too confusing with him like jumping around in size from scene to scene. Okay. Zugsmith was born in 1910, and he was a journalist, he was a music promoter, he was a publicist, including for Al Capone, uh, and Uh. he was a few other things uh, (laughs) through his life before he became a sales broker, uh, specifically a sales broker of like media properties, um, like, like media assets. So like he would broker sales of like, film production companies and television stations and radio stations and things like that. You know, he would be the guy brokering Disney buying Fox, right? Um, And so he became a millionaire off the commissions from those sales deals. Okay. Uh, Once he became a millionaire, um, well, Zugsmith was a big movie buff. So he was like, cool, time to become a movie producer. (laughs) With my money. Uh, So he founded a company called American Pictures Corporation with writer Aubrey Wisberg 
and director Jack Pollocksman. And together, they made a string of highly successful movies, of which none ever cost more than $100,000. Sure. We've actually seen some of their movies before. Um, The Man from Planet X would be an example. Zug Smith's success at this led to him getting a contract uh, to become a producer at Universal International, which meant the end of American Pictures Corporation. But hey, moving up in the world. And at Universal International, he produced a ton of movies. Uh, One of his biggest hits was the Rock Hudson, Lauren Bacall melodrama, Written on the Wind, directed Mm. by Douglas Sirk. Mm -hmm. Among his later films, after this one at Universal, would be Orson Welles' failed comeback, the late period film noir, Touch of Evil. In the 1960s, he left Universal for a better deal at MGM, but even though the pay was higher he didn't really like the working atmosphere at the studio he didn't like the people he was working under he found it too restrictive he didn't get along um so in the late 60s he left mgm to become a director uh an independent director um where in the late 60s and through to the mid 70s uh the last period of his career he basically just made like a string of exploitation movies after the production code uh came crashing down uh lots of lots of sex in his last uh several movies universal was wary of the story's lack of a happy bow tied around it resolution Mm -hmm. Um, but zug smith convinced the studio to provide a budget of seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars Wow. Uh, Provided he bring in an experienced screenwriter to rewrite the script and remove the flashback structure. Zug Smith brought in Canadian screenwriter Richard Allen Simmons, uh, who was born in Toronto and served in the Royal Canadian Air Force in the 1940s. Uh, And Simmons did what he was told. Matheson, (laughs) Matheson was unhappy with the changes that were made, which he saw as being made to make the script more commercial uh, and he thought they weakened the characters and he protested Simmons getting a screen credit. It would be many years later um, that Matheson would finally come to terms with the changes made and sort of enjoy the movie for what it was. Um, It took his son showing it to him like decades later and being like, just like watch the movie through my eyes as someone who like isn't attached to it kind of thing for Mm -hmm. him to realize um, that it was really good actually. At this point uh, with the script completed, uh, Jug Smith also added the word incredible to the title. So uh, it's the film's producer is the reason why (laughs) this is incredible. That should not actually be a surprise to me. Yeah. (laughs) Given like the titles that producers have provided in the past. Yeah. To direct, Universal brought in their top sci-fi guy, uh, Jack Arnold, Mm -hmm. director of It Came From Outer Space, Creature from the Black Lagoon, Revenge of the Creature, This Island Earth, and Tarantula. I do think there's going to be something interesting about, with that theme of masculinity, because that was a theme in the last Creature movie. Um, It's a theme that Jack Arnold has grappled with in the past Mm -hmm. so i'm very curious to see what he does here production on the film started four days behind schedule 
Oh, no. Uh, on April 24th of 1956. Just uh, couldn't find a spider guy. <laughs> no, the reason for this is that um, Arnold and Zugsmith had wanted uh, Dan O'Hurley to star in the picture. Um, O'Hurley had gotten his start playing Macduff in Orson Welles' Macbeth. Um, he also starred in Zugsmith's earlier B-movie Invasion USA about uh, Soviets invading. And he had recently played the title role in Robinson Crusoe, for which he was nominated for an Academy Award. Oh, nice. So O'Hurley looked at this movie, and he saw it as basically another movie where he would be portraying an isolated person fending on their own for survival. And he didn't want to be typecast as that kind of role, so he turned the movie down. Okay. Um, I feel like that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, Today, Dan O'Hurley is probably best remembered uh, for his role in the first two RoboCop movies and on Twin Peaks. Because O'Hurley turned it down, they now had to like scramble to find a star, which is why they started late. Um, At the request of the studio, Grant Williams uh, was cast um, because Universal had decided that Grant Williams was going to be their new star. Okay. How did Grant Williams feel about this? Well, Grant Williams was born John Joseph Williams in (laughs) 1931 in New York. Uh, He did like high school plays and summer stock and stuff growing up. Um, But he served in the Air Force during the Korean War. After his discharge, uh, he enrolled in the Actors Studio in New York and studied under Lee Strasberg. Following some minor stage and TV work, Universal signed him in 1954. Jack Arnold had previously directed him in the Western Red Sundown and the film noir Outside the Law. (laughs) Both of which sound like fake (laughs) names, like that if you needed to like come up with a generic like Western and film noir name. Anyways, Uh, however, Williams prophesied stardom never came to be. After this movie, his career declined. Uh, He mostly played like minor supporting roles in smaller and smaller movies until Universal released him from his contract in 1959. The rest of his career uh, was spent on television doing like guest star stuff uh, until his death in 1985. So he is the shrinking man yeah, in the, the sense inc- that his stardom shrunk. The incredible shrinking career, yes. Yeah. Actress Randy Stewart, who was a personal friend of Jack Arnold's, uh, was cast as the wife. She was seven years older than Williams. Oh, that's interesting. That's not very common. No. The cast also includes Paul Langton, who we last saw in The Snow Creature, but is best known... <laughs> probably as Leslie Harrington on Peyton Place, Raymond Bailey, who's best known as Mr. Drysdale on the Beverly Hillbillies, and William Shallert, who was the villain in Man from Planet X, uh, and who I best know for his guest appearances on Star Trek and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Okay. (laughs) The book, The Shrinking Man, came out in May of 1956 and filming began for the incredible shrinking man on may 31st universal's publicity department decided to run a closed set 
so they could shroud the film's special effects processes in mystery. Sure. Special effects sequences were among the earliest shot using a wide variety of methods uh, to get across the shrinking, um, which is generally like the best thing. If you want to mm-hmm. have like successful special effects, do more than one kind of thing. So they had forced perspective, uh, which is what they used for like the Lord of the Rings movies to make Elijah Wood look like he's three feet tall. Um, they also used black velvet photography, which is a kind of matte photography that you do in camera rather than in post. Yeah, I think we talked a lot about that during our Invisible Man episode. Mm-hmm. And then the last method used was oversized sets and props. Which we saw in the Devil Doll. That's right. Um, so a v- wide variety of methods here. The oversized sets were constructed on stage 12 of Universal Studios, which at the time was one of the world's largest sound stages. The film began shooting in Academy Ratio, 1.33 to 1, um, but midway through shooting, uh, around June 22nd, it was decided to switch to a widescreen ratio of 1.75 to 1, uh, because the shorter frame would make constructing the oversized sets and props cheaper and easier (laughs) because if you have to build like a giant chair for him to stand beside if the frame is shorter in relation to him you don't have to build it as high yeah so the cost equaled out with having to reshoot so they didn't reshoot the stuff they'd already shot uh they just cropped it During the shooting of the scenes on the oversized sets, uh, Grant Williams suffered a number of injuries. Uh, He injured his leg doing some stunts. He burned his hands climbing up a rope uh, with like blisters and stuff. Oh, sure. Um, Rope burn. Okay. Yeah. And he injured his eyes when he looked directly into an arc light on set. Why? Uh, So he had like a number of cases over the course of the movie where he had to go to the um, studio hospital and filming had to be like shut down because when you're shooting the stuff on the oversized sets, by that point in the movie story, he's the only character. So you can't like shoot other actors. Yeah, exactly. But Williams kept going. Kept, kept. He's a professional. Exactly. Uh, A scene involving large droplets of water from like a leaky tap falling on Williams proved especially challenging to do because how do you create giant drops of water? Sure. Like you can shoot a drop of water with like macro photography and like mat it in, but if it actually has to interact with him and splash on him, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. Um, So Jack Arnold came up with an ingenious solution. Uh, He remembered as a kid finding condoms in his dad's drawers and not knowing what they were. So as a child, he decided what he was going to do was fill them with water and then drop them from their apartment's balcony. Sure. That's a a very kid thing to do. (laughs) And he recalled that they looked really cool when they splashed and that they held a teardrop shape as they fell. So... (laughs) Back in... This is like, you know, when they do like biography movies uh-huh. um, and it's like, oh, this one thing impacted yeah. this entire genre, this entire person's milieu yeah. over or whatever. 
this is Jack Arnold. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing where like you're trying to come up with the solve and then they flash back to him as a small child throwing condom water balloons off a balcony. So yeah, he remembered that, you know, these made like a perfect water drop shape. So he ordered a hundred condoms for the movie's production and then like put them on a raised platform up in the air on a treadmill so that they would come off and fall off the platform like at a regular steady rate. The studio exec or producer who had to approve that purchase probably had a moment of like, uh, Jack, what what are you doing? What do you have planned? Yeah, I'll tell you about that later. Oh, no. <laughs> so the Black Velvet photography uh, started on July 13th. Arnold did the Black Velvet photography for this film by a method where he would shoot the stuff that didn't have Grant Williams in it first. He would time that stuff once he could see the dailies. And then once he'd worked out the timing, he could shoot the stuff with Williams and like give him the exact timing of when to like react to things. Oh, interesting. This was especially useful because um, a lot of the things that Williams had to react to uh, were not human actors who could adjust their rate of speed of performance, uh, but animals. Mm. Um, so they had the cat and the spider, right? As you mentioned in the novel. So they had a few dozen cats that all looked the same, about 40 cats, 40 cats. Um, <laughs> and the way they directed the cats was with hidden food. Mm -hmm. So they would hide food around where they wanted like the cat to go basically. Um, and then to direct the spiders, uh, they used puffs of air. So you would like shoot a little air puff at the spider and that would make it walk. Mm -hmm. Now, they found that Black Widow spiders were too small to effectively film. You couldn't get like the camera lens close enough to it to make it look big uh, in any way. Um, so they nixed that and instead went with tarantulas. Now, studio publicity said that this was Tamara, the same tarantula who had starred in Alan's giant bug movie, Tarantula. Uh, this was untrue. You mean there's not a single tarantula getting all the movie gigs in, in Hollywood? No, no. Just like cruising around with like um, a diva scarf <laughs> around its neck. Yeah. Riding no. in like the back of a limo with like a little like cigar. <laughs> no, uh, Tamara was a studio fiction. Um, for one thing, 24 tarantulas died in the making of this movie. Uh, due to the hot studio lights. Oh, yeah. Which would just sort of, if they were in it too long, cook them to death. Yeah. Yeah. So, ultimately, the movie came in four days over schedule, which, if you recall, it started four days over schedule. Oh, okay. Um, but it also came $25,000 over budget. That's not bad, considering it's a special effects movie. Yeah, and they had all these Difficulty shooting, changing aspect ratio midway through, Williams, injuries, all the unique problems. I do just want to point out the movie shot from like late May to late July, which is, I think, the longest shooting schedule we've had for a movie on Scream Scene for a while now. Yeah. However, because it came in over budget, uh, the studio audited the costs 
and they called Arnold in to like explain some of them. Like, why <laughs> did you have to do this? Why did you have to do that? Why did you buy? Why a did you buy condoms? Yeah. Why did you buy a hundred condoms? Uh, the actual question asked of him was, what the hell was this for? <laughs> to which Arnold replied, well, it was a very tough shoot. So when it was over, I threw a rap party. No, 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 no. Jack. I mean, maybe he's going for the pun. No, he's just going for the, for the obvious joke. So the studio was still nervous about the ending. They wanted Jack Arnold to shoot a happy ending where a serum is made by some scientists and Carrie grows back to normal size and is reunited with his wife. Arnold refused. Uh, he refused to budge. So the studio went, okay, fine. We'll test screen your ending. And when people hate it, you'll shoot a happy ending. Mm -hmm. So the test screening was held on December 7th. And the comments that they got back from the audience include, should have had a different ending, should have grown again. What happened at the end can't you do any better this is pretty sad <laughs> and you scared my son to death exhibitors did he die though no, no not like that kid who watched uh the quatermass experiment no theater owners and exhibitors also agreed and felt that the film should have a happy resolution arnold refused to budge <laughs> insisting that without the nihilistic ending, the picture would be ruined because the story would have no point. And he used his past hits for Universal sort of as leverage to suggest that he could be trusted. Didn't he have to fight the studios on the last Creature movie about the ending with that? Yes, where the creature essentially commits suicide and the studio didn't like that. And we ultimately got like a weird, like we got Arnold's ending, but shot in such a way that you could blink and miss it. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he's had this fight before. So now he, he's come ready. Yeah. So ultimately a compromise was reached to allow Arnold to keep the original ending, which is that Arnold wrote a final voiceover monologue for Scott, which suggests that he has accepted his eternal shrinking because no matter how small he becomes, God will always know that he's there. Mm. Matheson hated that yeah i can absolutely see why but it feels like a suitable compromise yeah and it was it was only years later that matheson conceded that like arnold had saved the movie mm -hmm. by doing that um and that he should have given arnold more credit instead of being mad at him so the incredible shrinking man opened on february 22nd 1957 in new york with a eventual domestic gross of $1.3 million against its expenditure of $775,000. Yeah, so a success. Exactly. Some critics panned it, like Bosley Crowther of the New York Times, who said, Unless a viewer is addicted to freakish ironies, the unlikely spectacle of Mr. Williams losing an inch of height each week while his wife, Randy Stewart, looks on helplessly will become tiresome long before Universal has emptied its lab of science fiction cliches. 
while other critics, uh, like the Monthly Film Bulletin, praised it. Uh, They said it was a horrifying story that grips the imagination throughout, a straightforward, macabre, and as startling original as a vintage Ray Bradbury short story. For all its peaceful and resigned conclusion, it opens new vistas of cosmic terror. Mm -hmm. The Incredible Shrinking Man also won the very first ever Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation, which is the Hugo Award for, like, a TV episode or a film that, you know, is outstanding that year in the sci-fi genre. Dramatic is in, like, theatrical. Right. Mm-hmm. Precisely. In the years since its release, uh, its critical stature has grown, um, and it is now considered to be Jack Arnold's masterpiece and one of the best genre pictures of the 1950s. Interesting. Um, when you say that it's considered Jack Arnold's masterpiece, do you mean, like, up to this point in his career? No, or like, do you mean overall? Overall, yeah. Okay. Arnold would later make a fantasy film in the UK that he considered his favorite with shrinking man is like his second favorite, but nobody really saw that movie. So, um, generally critics consider this to be his best movie. Okay. The film's success led to universal commissioning a sequel from Matheson. So Matheson wrote a script for a sequel called the fantastic little girl, where the wife character from the first movie would intentionally shrink herself so that she could go on an adventure to find her husband. The studio passed. Yeah. A comedy remake, Mm -hmm. The Incredible Shrinking Woman, would be released in the 1980s and was Joel Schumacher's first film. (laughs) And in 2013, Matheson wrote a script for a modernized remake uh, with like nanotechnology stuff um, with his son. But he passed away later that same year and that movie was not made. Mm Mm-hmm. So today, uh, you can watch this movie by either renting it from the Cineplex store, finding it on DVD in Universal's Classic Sci-Fi Ultimate Collection box set, or on Blu-ray from Arrow Video. Okay. Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, directed by Jack Arnold. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene, everybody. We just finished watching The Incredible Shrinking Man from 1957, directed by Jack Arnold. What did you think, Sarah? Um, I think the special effects were really well done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the story was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, I hated everything with the spider. <laughs> Fair. But um, I think that probably speaks to how well they did things with the spider. Yeah, absolutely. Um. But I do think we are going to have to have a conversation where you really lay out why you consider this horror. Yeah, I think that's merited. I think a lot of this movie's power, the first time I saw it, came from me just going like, oh yeah, this is one of those like goofy 50s sci-fi movies. Cool. And not really expecting the tone of it. And then like not knowing the ending going in. Mm -hmm. You know, being totally 
blindsided by the like ending where like she never finds him in the basement and he never gets cured. Um, so if you haven't seen the incredible shrinking man, uh, I'm sorry that we spoiled it for you, uh, (laughs) before you even got a chance to watch the movie. My bad. Nearly 60 years after it came out. Like I take spoilers seriously, but when people come to listen to our show, I think they anticipate there being spoilers. It's been 65 years. Oh, what I meant was like 60 plus. Sure. But, you know, math is not my strong suit. No. So the movie's pretty close to the book other than like just changing the structure. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can sort of talk about the specifics of the story before we get into discussing the film. Yeah. Uh, We just finished talking about spoilers. Mm -hmm. So spoilers ahead. Yeah. Here's the synopsis. Robert Scott Carey and his wife Louise are vacationing on his brother's boat when there's a weird mist that blows across the water. Now, Louise, at this point, has gone below decks to whip up some lunch. So Carrie is the only one exposed to this weird mist, and it covers him in like this kind of sparkly material. Glitter. Yeah, man, it gets everywhere. <laughs> is this what environmentalists mean with uh, like microplastics in the water? Maybe. Is this what they're referring to? I don't think so. Okay. I think that's a different thing. Six months later, he begins to notice his clothes seem a bit too big. Now, he assumes it's a mix-up at the cleaners. You know, oh, Louise, you picked up the wrong pants again. Um, except, like, for example, his shirt is monogrammed with his initials, so it's not a mix-up. It is his shirt. There are other pieces of evidence that confirm Carrie's fears that he's shrinking, Uh, For example, Louise doesn't have to go on her toes to kiss him anymore. Um, He's been a solid six foot one since he was 17. uh, And after going to the doctors, they're like, well, you're like a 5'11". That's still pretty good. Why are you complaining? (laughs) Confirming the shrinkage with a couple of x-rays, Carrie's doctor sends him to the Medical Research Institute because his doctor's like, I don't know, but these eggheads over here probably will have a way to figure this out. After three weeks of tests, they come to the conclusion that the mist was radioactive and it mixed with Carrie's exposure to an insecticide, which, given their descriptions, I believe it's DDT, and it has mixed together and started to cause him to shrink. Yeah. Perfectly scientifically reasonable. Prove them wrong. Tell Tell me that radioactive DDT doesn't make you shrink. Show your work. Through this time, Carrie has continued to shrink and has even tried to talk to Louise about her obligations to him, um, saying that, you know, you didn't sign up for this, Louise, so you're, you can go. Like, I'm not going to hold you to this marriage because we don't even know what's going on. And she's like, no, I'm here to stay. I love you. You know, I meant what I said in my vows, till death do us part, in sickness and in health. Yeah, Carrie's like only you know a few inches shorter than he started out at and he's already like i'm i'm not a man anymore louise you should leave me (laughs) later now at the height of a child carrie is becoming increasingly frustrated both with you know the slow 
scientific progress on a cure or anything like that, um, with his own stature, um, and with their own financial troubles, because he wasn't able to work. He quit his job, and Louise uh, is a stay-at-home wife. So they're basically living off of um, Carrie's brother. For some income, Carrie sold his story to newspapers who dubbed him the Incredible Shrinking Man. That's the name of the movie. Yes, it is. But Carrie is pretty bitter about the attention. Uh, Louise is also at her wit's end because of the like constant nonstop press and uh, lack of privacy. Then, a serum! The doctors call up and they seem to have a serum that they think is going to work. Uh, 50% science, 50% prayer, uh, <laughs> as they put it. But after, you know, observing Carrie for a week post-injection, um, he, the shrinking seems to have stopped. Now Carrie goes, okay, well, how about uh, me growing back, going back to normal? And the doctors are like, listen, one battle at a time. <laughs> We got you to stop shrinking. Now we start on that other half. While Carrie is relieved to not be shrinking anymore, he is pretty depressed and almost like emotionally broken at his new state of being. Um, he's about three feet tall at this point, um, and he, he is just completely dejected with life. He's growing more resentful of his size and even of Louise. Um... I think because she reminds him of what his life had been. Sure. And I'm sure that there's also like, there's a lot of read between the lines stuff in this movie, but like, you know, he, he's three feet tall. Like they aren't having sex and that's like clearly a factor in this, even though no one ever talks about it in the movie. Yeah. So he goes out one night to just get away from Louise try to you know walk away from his problems a bit and he ends up walking near a sideshow just the perfect place for someone who feels like a freak to be (laughs) at a coffee shop nearby he meets clarice a little person who encourages carrie to see the world and his size in a new light she's like i've been this way my entire life and you have to kind of just learn to embrace it and she even jokes that hey you know you're you're taller than me And they begin what, again, reading between the lines, is an actual affair. Not reading between the lines, uh, you could even just characterize this as an emotional affair. Yeah, it's it's depicted on screen basically as like a friendship, but there were elements in the script that made it more explicit uh, that the two of them were like having a romantic relationship that Universal cut from the script. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's feeling full of life again. Uh, Louise obviously doesn't know about any of this. And he, he's feeling good about his situation until he starts shrinking again. The next time we see Carrie, he is now living in a doll's house. Um, and his insecurities have continued to manifest into negativity towards Louise, just being very controlling, like, where are you going We'll be right back. Only five minutes out. You know, make sure you don't let any animals in the house. Like, yeah. being very, like, stern. And it's definitely in the tone as well. Yeah, like, it's basically as if, you know, he can't control the shrinking problem. So he's trying to assert as much control over his life as he can because he is 
realistically completely helpless. Like mm-hmm. he's completely dependent on Louise for everything. And, you know, that's giving him this inferiority complex where now he has to like, it's like in proportion, he becomes a bigger jerk in proportion to how small he is. Yeah, absolutely. One day she goes out and um, their cat, Butch, who I have to assume is named that because he is not neutered. <laughs> Butch manages to get himself into the house. Uh, With Louise gone, um, Butch goes to attack Carrie, uh, getting into the dollhouse like he's, you know, Jack Nicholson in The the Shining. Right. um, And is attacking Carrie. Carrie manages to escape to the basement um, by trying to, like, close the door. And then he accidentally falls and gets, like, knocked out from his fall. Louise, when she comes home, believes that the cat has killed Carrie. In the cellar, uh, Carrie awakens from his fall, and he tries to survive down there, um, at least until Louise finds him. Then, um, as, you know, a little bit goes by, a little bit of time goes by, um, he starts thinking, okay, well, now this is going to be about demonstrating my masculinity by dominating my new realm. Mm -hmm. Um, However, these efforts are thwarted by a spider as well as a burst hot water heater. Heartbreakingly, I think, Louise and Carrie's brother come to the basement in response to the hot water heater bursting open and that flood, but Carrie is unable to get their attention. Now fully alone, Carrie resolves himself to his shrinking existence, saying that I'm no longer afraid And he kind of describes himself as like, no, like, this is the future of men. Like, maybe other people were exposed to that weird floating mist. And we're going to create some new civilizations, go where no man has gone before. And he will matter because these huge galaxies, these things of vast size, matter just as much as something as infinitesimally small like me. And, of course, God knows I exist, so I matter. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of comes to the philosophical conclusion that, like, the infinitely small and the infinitely vast are realistically, like, the same thing. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. Yeah. I think he calls them, like, a circle. Yes. They come together at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which... Is interesting. Is fair. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's something I started thinking about after watching, um, I think it's, like, Men in Black 2, where... um, there's a cat named Orion and there's a galaxy on That's his? Men in Black 1, but yes, okay. you are correct. <laughs> well, in any case, that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ben, this um, you had seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. Um, when was the last time you saw this movie and did it hold up to when you last saw it? I don't remember the last time I saw it. Um, it it might have been back in, like, university, so maybe, like... 10 years ago um it held up but i do think at some point or another it is merited to have a discussion of whether it should go on the list or not you're jumping ahead yeah that's the segment after the discussion yeah i don't feel as strongly now about it being horror as i did then interesting yeah i think i did enjoy this movie Mm. um i'm still feeling itchy about the thought of spiders and that's not the movie's fault But um, I think it did very well at telling its story. I really appreciated that, like, it's almost a little, like, 
sitcom-y at the beginning with like the way that the music is and everything and Carrie and Louise's relationship being mm-hmm. like, you know, oh, you got the wrong clothes from the cleaners again, Louise. Sure, yeah. Hit the laugh track. Right. Um, and then it just completely switches as he starts to get smaller. Yeah, I think that despite Matheson's protestations, one of the best things about the way this movie goes is how gradual it is. Mm-hmm. Where, as you say, it starts out kind of goofy. Um, things that you can laugh off. But I think it does like a reasonable job of portraying like a degenerative illness mm-hmm. where it's like Absolutely. you start out and it's like, Oh, it's just like a cough or like, Oh, that's weird. I couldn't lift a pencil for a second there. That was strange. And it gets like slowly worse and worse until like you have this desperation. Right. And I think it would have been too much to just start with one inch tall carry and then do a flashback. Like, I think that would have made it almost like camp. I think it works when you are reading because you control the pace. Yeah. Whereas with a movie, you sit down and the story occurs in front of you. Yeah. The gradual pace here helps the movie start in a place that's grounded, Mm -hmm. right? We start in the recognizably like real. And then as it goes on more and more, you can feel that desperation in Carrie build Mm -hmm. and you, you can understand it. And it draws you into the story emotionally so that you're fully invested and engaged by the time he's like fighting a tarantula with a sewing needle sword, (laughs) you know? Yeah, I am surprised how well they did the action with the cat and with the spider, but I'm going to talk about the cat. Um, (laughs) I, I think... The efforts that Arnold went to that you described in the beginning of, you know, timing and letting Williams know when to react, I think that worked really, really well because it felt very well integrated. Yeah. And there's a lot of care being done at every step of the movie, like all of the supersized like props and furniture and stuff all the giant sets look really good Mm -hmm. like they look very convincing as like this is what this looks like if it was huge down to like some very clever stuff that they do to depict like a ball of yarn i think even when the oversized furniture isn't like these giant things like when he when carrie is the size of a small boy for example um, I had to laugh the way he's sitting in one of the chairs and looking so like grumpy and dejected. Um, and that's kind of the point yeah. because he looks so grumpy and dejected. And, and it's like he is feeling the humiliation of me just laughing at him. Right. And it's a very interesting moment in the film, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the special effects are really well done throughout um, the props, everything. The um, only time that the special effects sort of give away the illusion is with some of the black velvet photography. Mm -hmm. And the reason this happens is because of like a unique issue to that particular method of doing this. Mm -hmm. Every method of doing this is going to have some element that's going to give it away. Probably up to and including CGI, but certainly CGI is the you know easy way out these days to getting closer and closer to photorealism with these kinds of effects. But just to talk about the black velvet photography here for a second, the shots that 
kind of give it away are shots where they need Carrie to look small in frame in addition to being like small in the story. So if they need to do a wide shot of the living room with him running across the floor, they can't afford to build an entire giant living room for a wide shot. So they've got the camera on the floor in the real living room and then he's running across and he's been um, matted in. But the way that black velvet photography works it's all in camera so it's not like you're doing optical printing which you would with a blue screen optical printing is like an analog kind of photoshop in the sense that you're literally like taking one bit of film and like pasting it onto the other kind of Mm -hmm. so you can control how big he is in the frame a lot easier if you need him to be a certain size in the frame with the black velvet photography the camera needs to be that far away from him Right. So you have a camera that's super, super far away from Grant Williams mixed with a camera that's super up close to like this living room. And he's supposed to be running by the camera, like as if he was maybe a foot away from the camera where this breaks down is, you know, the smaller something is in a film image, the less resolution it has. And he doesn't become pixelated because that's not how film works, but he's more like blurry There isn't Mm -hmm. as much detail and he's really close to the camera. So like he should have definition and detail because everything else at that depth is in focus. So those are kind of the occasions where it gives it away. Um, If you did it with optical printing with a blue screen, the thing that can give that away, even if you mat it perfectly and you don't have blue bleed is um, his texture will look wrong because he will have smaller film grain in him mm-hmm. than the film grain around him, um, which is like a really weird thing, but it's interesting how your brain can spot when something looks wrong, even if it doesn't understand why. Yeah. The uncanny Valley of, I guess, optical printing. Yeah. Um, one thing that really bothered me again, besides this fighter mm-hmm. is it was really weird when Clarice showed up mm-hmm. because she is played by a regular sized actress mm-hmm. who is just in the oversized set with Williams. Yes. And she's like, Oh yeah, I'm a little person. You know, I've always been like this. And the thing about little people is they have a particular physique mm-hmm. and she doesn't. doesn't look like that. And it's further underlined because As she sits down, she waves goodbye to a friend of hers who is played by a little person. Yeah, I think this is one of the big failings of the movie, Mm -hmm. but it's also like kind of a catch-22 that they trap themselves in. The official reason given for why Clarice isn't played by an actress with dwarfism um, is that it would be more, they would have to do more split-screen photography Mm -hmm. um to make carrie and her look the same height and they just couldn't afford to do more split screen photography it was easier to just put two people on the already existing huge cafe set or whatever but i think that everybody kind of knows the real reason why it was done um ableism yes ableism and you know the way that that intersects with I don't even know what the word for this is, but like the way that people are like aesthetically judgmental. So 
the idea is you want the audience to identify with Carrie. Carrie is supposed to get happier and feel more normal because there's this person who he's around who he is more like in proportion with. Mm -hmm. Um, And there is a, you know, implied romantic element there. So I think somebody thought, well, then she has to be attractive. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing was the idea that like, oh, well, uh, an actress with dwarfism wouldn't be attractive to the audience. So we need someone hot uh, for him to fall in love with so that the audience like sympathizes with him. Basically, the story purpose that she's supposed to serve would be undercut if she looked visibly different from him the way that a true person with dwarfism would. But by doing it this way, the movie is giving a very unrealistic portrayal of dwarfism because everybody in the audience knows what a person like that looks like, like what the proportions are. Yeah. And so it's, it ends up breaking your immersion anyway, I guess. I think it would have been more powerful if Clarice was played by a little person. And like, I do understand the, logistical reasons why they didn't go with it. But you're absolutely right that there are the ableist reasons as well that are just, you know, going to be there no matter what. Yeah. They trapped themselves there because the story beat doesn't work the other way, but doing it this way also doesn't work. Yeah. So I think Scott is a really great character because he starts off already as kind of a jerk. But like an acceptable level of jerk in his society. Yeah, absolutely. But I think it is not accidental that like the very first thing he does in the movie is while they're both relaxing on the boat, he asks Louise to get him a beer. Actually, he doesn't even do that. That mm-hmm. would be fine if you were like, hey, hun, can you get me a beer? No, he declares I'm thirsty And then just waits, expecting her to, like, go get him a beer based on that declaration. And then when she doesn't, he goes, like, I said I'm thirsty. Yeah. And, I mean, like, they position it, they as in the makers of the movie, position Mm -hmm. it as, like, a comedic thing that you could probably see in, like, I Love Lucy. Yeah. But it's still, like, oh, this dude is a little entitled. Yeah. And I think that's entirely on purpose. I don't think it's an accident. And so he starts off like that and then you know as we've talked about he gets worse throughout the movie and yet by the end of the movie when he's gone through all of these hardships um he's got like all our sympathy and we're rooting for him right when he has to like use a bent nail wrapped around a piece of thread to grappling hook his way across the top of a box using a paint can like all of these things that are like incredible feats for someone in his position. Um, More like inches. Sure. Incredible inches that he's achieving. <laughs> um, he we're you know, you're rooting for him and the suspense in the movie works really well. Like when he's dangling over a, you know, probably foot deep, but like to him, like bottomless crevasse, you know, you, you, you have that on the edge of your seat feeling that you get with like any, action sequence. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's, 
I think that's the sign of a really well done character that he is, he's got these unlikable qualities. They are fully on purpose. Like this isn't so many of the B movies we watch have unlikable protagonists where you get the feeling like they weren't meant to be unlikable. Yeah. Um, this is totally on purpose. And yet he remains sympathetic and him being sympathetic is like key to falling into the movie. Yeah. Well, cause his masculinity isn't portrayed like Gaston. Right. You know, like there are elements of his masculinity being like a bit of that entitlement that we see in the opening scene, as we discussed, um, as well as, you know, uh, my masculinity is what gives me significance and that being tied up with domination of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not done in the way of like Gaston you know, of like forcing my way into this girl's no, house. No, it's just that he is part of this particular society, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this particular society has told him like men are on top of the power hierarchy. Um, and you know, men are taller than women and bigger and stronger. And these are the things that like justify men being on top of the power hierarchy, <laughs> right? It's like, Oh, you can't have women in the army. They, they, they're too short and they can't lift a gun or whatever. Right. And so it, it makes sense that like, you know, as he gets smaller and re- has to rely on Louise, who previously had to rely on him for everything, he feels emasculated. And then it makes sense when he meets Clarice that this subsides for a bit because his issue is not really with being small. His issue is that society has said you fit in this piece of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. And then he feels like he doesn't fit that role anymore. And when he meets other people, his size who fit into society, he realizes like, Oh, there could be a place for me. And then he's the size of like an action figure. And it's just, there's just nothing for him. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. I think that's a really good point of knowing where you are in society's hierarchy um, the movie, I I think I would really appreciate and really take, it would really take the movie to the next level if it managed to be able to comment on that hierarchy. Mm. Um, but it doesn't go that far for social commentary. It goes only so far as to explore the psyche of someone who no longer fits in where they believed they fit yeah i think the social commentary is there it's just not it's just not underlined you have to like read into the movie sure i guess by social commentary i wanted something explicit showing that it shouldn't be a hierarchy it Mm. should be a partnership sure and i just think that like there's already a lot that this movie is doing yes that you would never see in a movie from this period. Um, And that's almost like a bridge too far to expect from it. Right. Yeah. That's why I said like it would take it to the next level for For sure. For sure. I think, I think the fact that it's even doing these things to its main character and like exploring them in the way that it is right. Like exploring the premise of like, Oh, you've shrunk down. What would that psychologically do to you? Not just like, how can that make you more vulnerable to Dr. Cyclops? Yeah. Yeah. You know, absolutely. Um, I think what is really interesting in this movie is the way that it depicts like the futility of your action or agency yeah. in the world. 
um, because all of Carrie's actions um, that demonstrate, I guess, like his masculinity. His I wrote, dominance. I wrote down manhood and I was like, oh, wait. <laughs> the word that is used throughout the movie is dominance. Yes. He needs to like explicitly dominate things. And any of his actions that are about explicitly dominating fail. Yeah. Even when he is his regular size. Yeah. Um, because Louise is amazing. I, I only want the best for Louise. <laughs> um, I think what's interesting is like at the end, you know, he, he's like, oh, I'm going to take down the spider because then this will show like, this is my dominating of this space. Like uh-huh. Louise isn't going to help me. I'm left alone out here, but I'm going to dominate my new realm. And he comes up with this plan like, oh, yeah, I still have a man's mind of using this strategy to use scissors to drag the spider down this wall. And he goes to the spider and he tries to get its attention and it doesn't give a fuck. And he throws rocks and doesn't give a fuck and has to, like, violently shake the web in order to get the spider's attention because the spider operates on instinct and is like i'm not hungry so why would i go eat you yeah exactly so once he gets the spider's attention and he has this plan of get my hook in you send you down the side of the wall using the scissors that plan fails because of just the way that the thread happens to go on the wall Mm -hmm. um and the only way he survives this predicament he's gotten himself into is through the instinct of like following his instincts within the heat of battle. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. That makes it sound like way more grandiose than it no, actually is. No, I mean is. like it's fucking Shelob and fucking Frodo at the end of two towers, except that like, you mean Sam? Well, in the sense, yes, yes, yes. I do mean Sam credit where credits do Ben. Yeah. Um, you know, because he's kills it with his needle sword. Exactly. But you're right that this is like all throughout. And I think, This is a big part of what makes the second half of the movie, the part in the basement, have a really unique tone. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the physical Jeopardy stuff starts with the cat and then continues into the basement. And there's just something that feels so desperate and hopeless about all of it. Because even when he wins, he can't win. Like, Mm -hmm. everything he does is a huge struggle, right? Like, he has to expend so much energy to do like the smallest things. Um, he needs shelter. He needs water. He needs food. He finds cheese on a mousetrap and like he finally manages to get the cheese off the mousetrap without like getting himself killed. And it ends up like flying the cheese across the room and right directly down the drain. Mm -hmm. And you know, so nope. And then it's like, so hard for him to get up to where the spider web is, where there's this like moldy crusty piece of old cake sitting there that he's going to eat. Um, it's, it's so much work and the movie makes you like watch every step of it. The first time he does it, um, he has to do it a few more times and they sort of let you get away with like a, a dissolve, but you still like feel the effort of it because you saw it in every single step the first time. And everything is super difficult. There's no part of it that's easy for him. When he gets all the food, like he breaks off a bunch of pieces of cake and brings it back down to like his little house with him. And then the water heater explodes and everything gets flooded and everything's ruined. 
right? And so then he has to get up again. And he's like, I have to kill the spider so I can have access to like the big chunk. And then once he's killed the spider, he's like, huh, I don't feel hungry anymore. Mm -hmm. Right? Like he's too small to want food. Yeah. Somehow. So it's just like, there's something really effective about it, especially with the fact that they keep throughout the whole basement sequence, like cutting back to Louise, um, where like, she's convinced the cat ate him because they found like his like sleeve with some blood on it. And also the cat like just happened to be like <laughs> licking its lips as she like looked over at it after finding the bloody sleeve. So they're like convinced the cat ate him. So they aren't looking for him. They don't look in the basement when they do start looking for him. And then Scott's brother convinces her like, you need to sell the house, which means she's never going to get around to like doing all the things that she would need to do to find Scott. And then when they do go to the basement, as you said, when the water heater breaks, like he's just too small. Like there's no amount of shouting he can do and they just don't see him. And, you know, eventually like they lock up the house and she drives away. There is a point in the movie where it's like, nope, she's not finding him. She's not coming to his rescue. That door is closed. Mm -hmm. And literally. Yeah. And, you know, as the audience, you're like, okay, so what's the resolution here then? Right. I think the resolution comes in the form of Carrie's acceptance versus attempts to control. Yes. Um, that moment when he finally has the cake mm-hmm. and isn't even hungry anymore. Um, and even with the continual, like, just follow your instincts and you'll succeed um, as like this little like fighter of spiders Mm -hmm. um he succeeded whenever he accepted his circumstances yes rather than trying to control his circumstances and it's not like the movie's trying to put forward that like you should never strive for more Mm -hmm. ambition's a bad thing the movie isn't saying that the movie's saying once you stop trying to control Mm -hmm. you'll succeed yeah um It's about the power of like acceptance in terms of accepting your situation, not in the sense that like you have to give up, Mm -hmm. but just in the sense that like once you've accepted this is my situation, you can start solving problems that are possible for you to solve instead of like paddling upstream, right? Exactly. Um, Why I think the tone of the basement scenes is so important, like the way that everything's desperate, the way that everything is difficult, the way that everything's like arduous and it all backfires on him. And like, he's, he's slowly kind of dying and all of this is it gives it a different feeling than what this could have been, which is like a fun twist on an adventure movie Mm -hmm. because he's doing a lot of the same tropes that you would find for like, I don't know, a movie about some guy lost in the jungle or or something where it's like oh he has to like make tools from what he has around and he has to like make a little sword and make a little grappling hook and then like he has to swing across chasms and walk across uh thin bridges that fall beneath him and he has to like survive a flood and he has to kill a monster and all these things and these things all could have been played like he was indiana jones or sir lancelot or something with a very like heroic tone and they aren't like they they never are it's all with a tone of like 
one wrong move and this guy's dead. Mm-hmm. And because the movie has shown you like Louise driving away and stuff, somehow you buy into the idea that he's really in jeopardy more than you do a lot of traditional movie heroes where you're like, well, Indiana Jones is not going to die here. That's, yeah. you know, where it's like this movie has demonstrated a kind of cruel streak and a kind of like, I, I don't think it's cruel. I think it's ambivalence. Sure. It's the nihilism. It's the like universe doesn't care about you mm-hmm. kind of feeling. Right. And because the movie's demonstrated that throughout like you actually buy that it might do something like, oh yeah, he dies because he slipped on some paint and fell off a desk. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen, but like because you can buy it, it makes those suspense scenes work way better. Yeah, I think this movie is definitely still nihilist. Um, I don't think your memory led you down the wrong path there. E- even with the attempt to like give it all a meaning that we can all feel happy about at the end. Yeah, I, it's like, you know, he shouts... I matter. And the universe looks down and doesn't even whisper. No, it, uh, you're not even registering for a response. Yeah. And it's that like the ambivalence of the universe about whether you are here or not. Yeah. Scott's acceptance is important for completing his character arc, but the movie you know, yes, the movie goes so far as to have this quasi religious ending where like he has this come to Jesus moment and he's like, well, God knows I exist. So because of that, I'll always be here. I'll always be a person. I'll always matter. That's true. But the movie doesn't go so far as to like end with like, yes, Scott, I'll always be there for you. You know, like it doesn't (laughs) go that far. Yes, But he still comes to the conclusion of like, no, I matter. Mm -hmm. And like, I matter because these very big things matter. And he finds value in himself, not where he fits in that puzzle of society. Yeah. Right. I'm just agreeing with you that like the universe doesn't reply. The universe doesn't like affirm his conclusion. I wonder, though, if it means with this ending kind of pushes this up further from horror yeah. because it's very much a I matter in the end mm-hmm. like I, I spent all this time going like man like I don't matter because I'm small I'm emasculated I'm humiliated I don't know where I fit in society and then you kind of go like well it doesn't matter where I fit in society I like me yeah absolutely I, I completely agree with you I think the earlier times I've seen this movie um, what was powerful was like it doesn't get fixed Mm -hmm. and in the context of like a 1950s sci-fi movie that just felt like so existentially horrific to me Um, but you're absolutely right that the final monologue where he kind of accepts his place in the universe undercuts the idea of it being a horror movie you know because we're getting sent out on kind of like what's meant to be like a good feeling Mm -hmm. Um, not that like I mean most of the horror movies we watch also have happy endings like this is they try less, to find a way absolutely. yeah like this is less of a happy ending than like mina and john harker like walking up a set of stairs at the end of dracula you know what i mean fair enough um into the sunrise yes the horror in this movie though is sort of more below the surface mm-hmm. like there's some terrifying stuff in this movie um you know giant spider giant cat 
all this kind of stuff. But the horror here comes from like the psychological condition. Like this Mm -hmm. is a cerebral horror. As I mentioned, you have to kind of think about it. And this is an existential horror. This is the horror of feeling like you don't, you might as well not exist. And it's a horror that people who aren't an inch tall experience because Scott is absolutely right. Like the universe is infinitely vast. So from the perspective of the universe, everyone's a speck of dust. Now he uses this to conclude that like, therefore I'm no more or less a speck of dust than anyone else. So I'm not going to be upset about this. But for a lot of people, that's like a really existential horror. Um, There are people who just like can't deal with thinking about scales that big for that reason, because they suddenly just feel like nothing matters that that nihilism Mm -hmm. closes in on them. And that's the fear. That's the horror that Scott's experiencing through the movie. Yeah. And I think especially because anything that used to be familiar now only serves to remind him of that horror. Yeah. um, The house becomes unfamiliar as everything becomes bigger around him. The doll's house that he lives in, like he can never fully adjust to because like, I mean, that couch is made of plastic, like, you know, like, like it looks right, but it doesn't feel right. And then, you know, by the time he's on the basement level, he's like, yeah, become like such a different scale that he's suddenly in like a adventure survival movie. Right. What I think about this movie is I do think this movie is rooted in horror and in horrific situations and fear and terror. But I don't know if that's the genre the movie is in. Mm -hmm. Like that absolutely is what's happening with Scott. And the thing is though, is to, for you to feel that same feeling as him, you have to take the moment to like think and put yourself in those places. It's not as visceral or immediate a response as like a jump scare is yeah um so one of the things that makes me question my earlier convictions about whether this is a horror movie or not is while it's about horror in the first episode one of our like guiding lights about how can you tell if something's a horror movie is what is it trying to make the audience feel mm-hmm. and we said you know a horror movie is trying to make you feel afraid it's trying to make you feel scared it's trying to scare you And I don't think this movie is trying to scare you. Like, I think it's trying to entertain you. Of course, it's a movie. Um, And I think there's a lot of good suspense in here. There's a lot of times where the movie wants you to be like on the edge of your seat and like scared for not scared, but like worried for Scott. (laughs) Um, And I think the movie is trying to hopes to maybe disturb you a little and get you like thinking about things in a really different way when you walk out of it but I don't know if the way that it wants to disturb you is enough, especially considering, as you've said, the way that the ending undercuts it all because the ending is so designed to be like, no, actually it's okay, Jimmy, it's going to be fine. Mm -hmm. I think that might make this movie really valuable as an allegory for chronic illness. Absolutely. Chronic and degenerative illness. And even for someone who has trouble accepting help sure someone who is so indoctrinated with the pull yourself up by your bootstraps you don't need anyone Mm -hmm. uh you know 
Ayn Rand kind of thing. Right. Um, who needs to recognize that no one does anything alone. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they would find this movie valuable. Yeah, but I don't know if all that together is enough to make it a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I do think I want to figure out what this movie is because it's definitely not. I think it might still be the closest thing to describe. It might still be a sci-fi horror blend because I don't know what you would call the other element in it that isn't sci-fi because like, I feel like if this was pure science fiction, two things would have been different. One, there would have been more focus on like the scientists trying to figure out a solution. Yeah, this felt very, it reminded me of Roger Corman where he Mm. uses the horror or whatever the inciting incident is to explore the characters as a character drama. Yes, absolutely. I think you're totally right there. I think the other thing that would be different if this was interested in being a science fiction movie is he would have at some point earlier in the running time than the end of the movie shrunk to the level of like, atoms and shit Mm -hmm. it would have become like adventuring among electrons and crap right i think that would be way more sci-fi but i think you you were right about the character drama thing for sure yeah to me i would best describe this as a sci-fi character drama um special effects movie sure it's also like a survival movie i guess i guess yeah like i i tried to do like a um a list mm. um, of like what would make this horror and what doesn't make it horror. Mm. And what does make it horror is like Louise is traumatized. Oh yeah. Louise is not having a good time here in this no. movie folks. Um, that that cat definitely got put down. There is fear in the, what is happening to me. It's not as visceral um, both visually and emotionally as we've seen in the past, like with the Quatermass experiment but it, it is there. And I think the feeling of like everything is out of my control. Um, but really the things that make it not horror feel like they're weighted heavier. Mm. That I matter in the end. Um, that it's good if you don't have control. You have to acknowledge you don't have control. Um, rather than being stuck in the horror of having no control over anything that happens to you. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think just over the course of doing this show, I've gotten like a feel for like what a horror movie is. Mm-hmm. And I don't think this is it. I do think this movie, like I want to just emphasize that I find this movie kind of like really disturbing mm-hmm. um, in its own way um, and very much of a different tone than you would expect of a movie of this sort, even a horror movie of this sort from this time period. There's just something about the like seriousness that this movie like addresses its topic Mm -hmm. where the movie is like, yeah, if this was really happening to someone, what would it be like rather than sort of just going like, yeah, it's just for funsies. Just go along with it. It's just for funsies which is kind of the feel you get with a lot of 1950s movies. Yeah. And I know that we've talked about the ending sequence as undercutting the horror and how, you know, it ended up being a compromise between Arnold and the studio. I kind of really like it. I, I like 
the feeling of connection to the universe mm-hmm. that it gives you because it's really easy to look at the vastness of space and be like, oh, fuck. Mm-hmm. But then you look back at Earth in its entirety and you go, oh, we're all one Earth. Mm. You know, there's like a duality there. And I appreciate that this movie embodies both. It reminds me of like that feeling you get when you see Malik's Tree of Life, for example. Like, you know... <sighs> So I, I, I really like that comforting feeling. Yeah, I I think I used to think of the ending as corny. Mm-hmm. I still kind of wonder if the movie would be like, I think the movie would be more horrific with an ending where he just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until we can't see him anymore. Absolutely. But what I recognize now seeing the movie is that that ending is important for closing out Scott's arc mm-hmm. in the film. So it sounds like we are both saying not to rank it. Yeah, I think this is going to go on the miscellaneous list with our other shrinking movie, Dr. Cyclops. <laughs> I guess I guess there is one shrinking movie on the list, and that's The Devil Doll. But I do think this is still the best Jack Arnold movie I have seen. Like, if you compare this to the Creature movies or The Silent Earth or It Came From Outer Space, like, this movie is top notch at what it's doing and it's doing a lot of clever things mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. I think he did a really great job as a director and as someone with a creative vision. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, if you'd like to see the movies that did rank on the list um, or other movies on the non-applicable list, you can head over to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. You can contest this or any other ranking by dropping us a line through our ask box on Tumblr, by reaching out over email at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and uh, wherever you like to listen to your podcasts if you subscribe through the RSS feed. If you want to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review or suggest the show to your friends through word of mouth, or if you feel so inclined, you can help support the show financially by heading over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month and get thanked on the show. Or at $5 a month, you can get access to weekly bonus audio cut from past episodes, all sorts of fun jokes, bloopers, and bits of trivia that didn't make the cut. At the $10 level, you get access to unique horror writing. We've done short stories. We've done movie reviews. Uh, Sarah right now is doing a retrospective series about the stuff that she's read and watched that has made her love gothic fiction. Yep. Uh, So if you want to check out any of that stuff, head on over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and sign on up. So Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah... Next week's episode is in the future, and we are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. Um. And future events such as next week's episode will affect us in the future. Oh, yeah? Creatures of the Night, you are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time... We are bringing to you the full story of what happened. We are giving you all the evidence 
based only on the secret testimonies of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. I don't know what you're talking about, Ben. The incidents, the places, my friends, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space? Okay, now it makes sense. Now I get what you're doing. (laughs) See you next week, creatures of the night. Bye! Bye!